That's Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, actions have consequences. Last week we saw, didn't we, the man and the woman, do you remember? Along with all humanity had a decision to make. Is the Lord God, the creator, worthy of our trust? Is that Lord God to be taken at his word? And after all that we'd then seen in Genesis 1 and 2, the answer, obviously, overwhelmingly, yes. The Lord is worthy of our trust. We can take him at his word. And yet we saw the man and the woman decided inexplicably, stupidly, arrogantly, rebelliously, not to trust in the Lord God, not to take him at his word. They did the one thing the Lord God had said not to do. They took of the fruit and ate. Well, actions have consequences. Even last week we saw, didn't we, immediately their eyes were opened, but they did not like what they saw. They realized they were exposed they were ashamed. And then we were left asking, what now will the creator do? What will he do with this very good world that he has created? And it's now as we read on in Genesis 3, we are given the answers. And here we are going to see our world as it is. Well, first, it is a world of hiding. Now, today, we all demand transparency, don't we? as if any of us really want full transparency. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you remember chapter 2? God said, humanity can eat of any tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, should they eat of that, they would die. But remember the serpent's words, you shall not surely die. And humanity likes to pretend that judgment is not a reality, so the man and the woman took the fruit. And yet, notice, at the same time, humanity knows that judgment is a reality. And so the man and the woman, having pretended there wasn't a judgment, well, they now know there's a problem, there's a judgment, and they deserve it. So they hide themselves from God. Now, of course, as we read this, the idea of hiding yourself from the Creator is laughable. But still today, many persist in trying to do it. Some try hiding from God, so to speak, far away, in the places they think God would never come. Others try the hiding in plain sight approach, something like religion. Surely they think, God, leave me alone if I am in St. Helens. Well, God is, of course, never fooled. Verse 9, look, the Lord God calls out to the man and then asks him whether he has eaten from the tree. So obviously, this is now the moment for the man to put up his hand and take responsibility. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So Adam throws Eve under the bus. But even more than that, notice what Adam is doing. He is blaming God. Notice what he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. It is God's fault. Well, the man's not the only one to pass the buck. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What can we say about the woman, what the woman said? It is true, isn't it? But again, here's our tactic. Say something strictly true, but as a smokescreen to shift responsibility away from ourselves. So here is our world. No one wants to take responsibility. Putin blames NATO. When we fail, we blame the pressures at work or the difficult people around us. We might just about admit, well, I'm not perfect, but then again, pick any particular issue and I will be able to justify just about everything I do and every decision I make. The blame is always elsewhere. And then when it comes to God, our world insists vehemently, he's the one with explaining to do, not us. So it's a world of hiding. And with that is a world of conflict and pain. Look at that first half of verse 15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So we've seen already there is a spiritual realm. The devil, a personal agent, is around and still is today. This is telling us we will be up against evil. Notice how the verse speaks of the serpent's offspring. That's not talking about more snakes, but people. That is, there will be people in the world who will do evil things and people will get hurt. There's more. Verse 16. To the woman, God said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Do you remember the creation God commissioned humanity to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and the woman's particular role would be to bear children. But now this will be hard. Notice the repetition, pain, and then more pain. And so it has proved. The birth of the first Glynn child was very challenging. The pain was so bad, I passed out. But my wife, Jenny, got through it okay. But sure enough, read on in Genesis. And in childbearing, there is pain. And then there is death. Now, notwithstanding advances made in modern medicine that some nations can call upon still, childbirth, what a traumatic experience. And it's not just the start, it doesn't end there. Children can produce much joy, but also deep heartache. And there's more, verse 16 goes on. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we've seen, haven't we, God instituted marriage to be a blessing. And yet, now the wife will try and take control of her husband, usurping his authority. He will respond harshly and dominate rather than lovingly lead. And so here it is, the battle of the sexes has begun. And that conflict in marriage will then be reflected in every human relationship. There will be friction and tussle. There's more. Verse 17. To Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So man, we've seen, was made to work productively and fruitfully. But now work will be difficult with frustration and futility, obstacles, hardship, failure. And again, doesn't our experience bear this out? There's more. A world of hiding, a world of conflict and pain. It's a world of death. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So our years of toil will then come to an end. Our hearts will stop beating, the lungs will stop inflating, the blood will stop pumping. These bodies, the atoms, if you like, that make them up, well, they will return to from where they came. Here the countdown to death has begun, and for each of us the clock is now ticking. And there is still more. Yes, physical death is coming, but there is more to death than that. Look down to verse 24. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, life ultimately is only in its truest and fullest sense to be found in the presence of God. And on this day, humanity has sinned and so is banished from the garden, from the presence of God. And it is very clear there is no way back. There is no access to the tree of life, dead. 
So Genesis 3 presents us with what we know from experience, a world of conflict and pain, a world of hiding, a world of death. Isn't it remarkable? It's an ancient document, but such an accurate description of our experience and the lives that we lead today. And not only that, it shows us the cause. It is not the creator's fault. It is ours. Actions have consequences. And yet, and yet, even here, it is not as bad as it could be. It is not as devastating as we deserve it to be. In fact, far from it. Notice the human race is not annihilated immediately. The earth is not laid waste completely. The cosmos does not return to chaos and nothingness. In fact, not only is existence ongoing, not only does the world keep turning, we see here the Lord God's purposes remain. We see this in a number of areas. First of all, life. It's almost assumed in this chapter, life goes on in a sense. But even this is astounding because we are rebels. We've seen that. And yet that breath of life, which is from the God that we rejected, well, it's still within us. Every time our heart still beats, yet further evidence of God's kindness and patience towards us. And what's more, there is life in the sense of more life, more people, as children will be brought forth. And so verse 20, the man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Adam's on to something. Yes, there will be generations to come. So there's life. Let's also see here God's purposes for work. We thought about Genesis 1 and 2, where humanity was given purposeful, meaningful, productive work to do, even so that we could play our part in the outworking of God's grand design for his creation. Well, now look down to verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So Adam has blown it, if you like, when it comes to his dream job. That has gone. There will now be pain and toil, but notice, still work. Likewise, for the woman, do you remember her particular role of childbearing? To multiply, to fill the earth? Yes, painful, but still work. It seems God's plans are still in place. They are still heading somewhere. Life and work and order. Do you remember, we saw order all over Genesis 1 and 2. Do you remember the beginning, an empty, a formless world? God brought such wonderful order to it. He divided in certain ways. He created different kinds. There was humanity with male and female. And then do you remember the order between the different creatures, humanity over the living creatures and naming them. We saw man naming the woman. Man and woman equally in the image of God and yet an order within marriage. That order, of course, was completely upended by us when the serpent deceived humanity who should have ruled over it. 
when Adam failed to lead and take responsibility, when even humanity rebelled against its creator. In all of these ways, we chose disorder. And sure enough, much of our world is now disordered. Well, more than that, it's disorientating. It's bewildering. But notice how in Genesis 3, God's order does remain. Still, male and female are dressed differently because we are distinct. Notice Adam, he names Eve, which is similar to what he did in chapter 2, naming the woman. Still, we see there is marriage. Still, the fields will produce the plants. Isn't this wonderful Our world, God's world, does still work to a large degree. Yes, still chaotic sometimes, but not complete chaos. Yes, it feels random, and then some will want to claim philosophically that it's all random, but it isn't. God-given order and regularity remain. Science works. Progress is possible. So life and work and order. And then provision is there all over. Let's pick out one example. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you remember how Adam and Eve had tried rather comically to cover their shame with those fig leaves? But here God provides clothing for them. Even to rebels, God gives what they need. A reminder that everything we have today is not due to our own efforts, but God's ongoing provision. So we've highlighted these areas, life and work and order and provision. Remarkably today, the world around us still takes these things completely for granted, even as it still tries to rebel against them. But we know, we can see God is still at work in the world because his creation purposes remain. But then we see again, maybe we feel again, but it's so spoilt. Relationships are broken supremely between us and our creator. So how will God deal with this? How will, if you like, God not only continue with his purposes, but achieve them? Where's it all heading? Well, next we see the Lord God's promise revealed. The Lord God's promise revealed. So Genesis 1 and 2, what a great creator God. But here in Genesis 3, well, all the more wonderful what we see about God. We've seen that already in the way that he responds to such rebellion. His kindness, his purposes still remaining. But there is more. Notice again, we've seen it each week, the first, the name given to God, the Lord God. Do you remember how the serpent tried to shift the focus, the agenda off that personal name for God onto the more impersonal God? But no, again, now the creator is named by this personal relational name of Lord God. We read that and think, could it be the God who created humanity to know him, to enjoy relationship with him, still wants that to happen? Then verse 8, remember we were told the Lord God came walking in the garden. Now, at first we might have wondered, was he coming to judge Well, it seems the man and the woman assumed that. That's why they hid. And they were on to something because God will judge sin and sinners. 
And yet now we think again, why was God coming to them? When God asked that question, where are you? Why did he want to know? What was his intention? And this is the beginning of, well, contrary to what many assume, the story of the Bible is not humanity's search for God. Humanity's hiding. It's the other way around. Into this rebellious world, it's God who comes looking repeatedly and persistently. If we jump much further forward, we see God coming all the more, if you like, personally in the Lord Jesus, who tells us why he came to seek and to save the lost. That's getting ahead of ourselves. Back in Genesis 3, how is God even going to begin to do this? If humanity are such rebels, rightly cut off from him, outside the garden, what will God do? Well, did we notice how before throwing them out, God made this stunning promise? Which brings us back to verse 15. Now, this really is a most astonishing verse. In embryonic form, what really we get here is the agenda for the rest of world history. It points us to how God will work out his master plan so that he will achieve this ultimate purpose, which we've seen is rest and ultimately marriage, relationship between him and his people. So let's have a look at this verse. It begins, I will put enmity between you and the woman. We've already thought about the conflict and pain that will involve, but did you notice the kindness of God even here in that sentence towards the woman. Well, do you remember the choice the woman had made? Which side, if you like, she wanted to be on when she took the fruit and ate it. But now God in his kindness is saying they will be set in opposition to each other, a point that ultimately the woman will not be on Satan's side. Verse 15 goes on, and between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, a bit of grammar here, you'll know that there are some words which the plural form is the same as the singular. One close to my heart, I'm Welsh, one sheep, many sheep. But the same principle is true about this word offspring. Another one of these words that can be used for the singular or the plural, one offspring, or many offspring. And as we read on in the Bible, we see the Bible works with this tension between those two senses. So let's think, first of all, of the plural. And that's to say this verse is saying that ultimately humanity will be divided into two groups of people. There will be the offspring of the woman, or in the end, God's people, and there'll be the offspring of the serpent who will continue in rebellion against God. That division will quickly become apparent. We'll see it in Genesis 4 next week. And God will use, uh, Satan will use his offspring to then harm God's people, or actually any people. And often, Satan will take this out on the youngest of people. Just think of the Bible story. Think of Pharaoh casting the Hebrew babies into the Nile or of Herod slaughtering the infants in Bethlehem. Or more recently, in times of war, those with no concern for the children, even targeting them. 
or those who will kill young people in the womb. Genesis 3.15 describes our world today. But our verse also uses the word offspring to focus on one individual in particular. Look again at the end of verse 15, how it's written. Speaking of the offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that word bruise is a little tricky to translate and a bruise in English may not quite convey the force of it. Maybe think of to strike or even to crush. So this verse is saying right from the beginning that this individual offspring will do battle with Satan. This individual will be struck by Satan, but ultimately only on the heel, whereas Satan will be struck fatally on the head. Now, before we go on, do you realize, isn't that a shocking thing to promise and to say here? Reading Genesis 3 so far, would we conclude, understandably, that any rescue for humanity would come from within? Surely any rescue would have to come from outside humanity, simply from God himself. And yet, we are told here, it'll be one of the woman's offspring from within humanity who somehow will deal the lethal blow. How on earth could that be? So we read on. From now on, if you like the Bible, it's the search for this offspring. Read on in Genesis. It's why we get these family trees, the lines through Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, famously, but it's evident Judah is the one to watch. We keep going. The people reach the land. Then one of the descendants of Judah, David, becomes king. Then the promise from David's line of a future king, all building on this promise from Genesis 3. Now, from here on, I'm going to tie what I say in particularly to what we've seen in our 4 p.m. small groups on Tuesday in Hebrews. If you are not one of your small groups, well, you should be. But uh, the particular references are on the sheet. The book of Hebrews is very much shaped by the Psalms, like Psalm 2. That's a psalm about the nations plotting and opposed to God. What will God do in response? Well, there'll be an anointed one, a chosen one, which will do what? Well, the psalm tells us he will break them with a rod of iron. Well, that shouldn't have been a surprise. It's not a new idea. It's what we should have expected. Even more central to the book of Hebrews is Psalm 110. There we're told that the promised king will sit at God's right hand until, quote, I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 6 of the psalm tells us more. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So the psalm has worldly rulers in view, but the word for chiefs is literally heads. Do you see what it's saying? This promise and will shatter heads over the whole earth. Well, I know some of us on Tuesday looking at Matthew's gospel. I didn't want you to feel left out. So um, do you remember the beginning of Matthew? The religious leaders come to John the Baptist. What does he call them? Well, he denounces them as a brood of vipers. That is an offspring of snakes. Well, John is spelling out whose side they are on. It's not just John. Twice more in Matthew, Jesus is exactly the same about those religious leaders. So those religious leaders, Jesus says, are Satan's minions. 
But then as we thought about last week, Jesus himself then had to do battle with Satan himself. We saw the temptations in the wilderness and then how that continued all the way to his death on the cross. Do turn with me now to our second reading, which was Hebrews 2, page 1204. Now, another key psalm is Psalm 8, and that's what gets quoted at the beginning of what we heard read. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 8, saying that of this king, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Do you see this theme continuing all the way from Genesis 3, right through the Psalms, and now to Hebrews? But the question is, well, how will the promised offspring, individual, do all of this defeating, bring everything under his feet. Well, look across to Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Second half, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So what was foretold in Genesis 3 comes to dramatic conclusion at the cross. At the cross, Satan lashed out at Jesus, but all the more decisively Jesus struck the devil. And with what result? Well, Christ is victorious. Just now, remember what Jesus said at his crucifixion to that thief hanging beside him. He'd asked Jesus to remember him in his kingdom, to which Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you see the connection? At the end of Genesis 3, the way back into God's presence was barred by the cherubim and that flaming sword. There was no way through. Humanity was dead. But now, because of the death of the offspring, victory was won at the cross. There is now access again into the paradise of God's presence. The way is open. There is life. Well, today in Christ, therefore, we are the offspring, the group, the offspring who belong to God. And look now, still in Hebrews 2 to verse 16, and how the writer of the Hebrews puts it. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Because Jesus has defeated Satan. Well, yes, now Satan is still prowling around, but the point is not for much longer. Jesus is helping us. And then the Apostle Paul puts to the end of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we've seen a world of conflict and pain. Humanity is responsible. We are responsible. But God persevered. God made a promise. And so he came looking to seek and to save the lost. God has kept that promise gloriously in Christ. The serpent has been crushed. There is life in the presence of God. It's ours forever. I'll lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we do so praise you that even in response to our wicked rebellion, you are a God who came looking. Thank you that you did not give up on this world or on us, but made this promise 
and then fulfilled it in Christ. Thank you that in Christ we are your people, enjoying the life of relationship with you. Amen.